Welcome to the Alt Asset Allocation Podcast. Exploring alternative investment opportunities available to the everyday investor. Here's your host, Ben Lakoff. Hello and welcome to the Alt Asset Allocation Podcast. Today's interview is with Art Berman, who is a world-renowned oil expert. Art is a geological consultant with nearly 40 years of experience in petroleum exploration and production. He is often interviewed about energy topics on television, radio, and national print and web publications, many big ones that you've heard of. Art and I discuss why investors should pay attention to oil and ultimately where oil prices are headed in the future. Before you listen, please don't forget to like or subscribe to the podcast, or even better, leave me a review. This really helps more people find the podcast and keeps this thing going. It really, really helps. There is a lot of noise out there in the oil markets, and Art is very knowledgeable about this topic. You don't want to miss Art Berman sharing all of his knowledge on these topics. Enjoy. Art, welcome to the Alt Asset Allocation Podcast. I'm super excited to have you on today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Ben. So you're all over the news and and podcasts and this whole world with oil. But for my listeners who don't know who you are, can you give a little brief background on who you are? Sure. I'm a I'm a petroleum geologist. I I'm an active petroleum geologist. I'm not a pundit. I'm not an analyst. I'm not a journalist. I don't run a a podcast. I I, I help my clients look for and produce oil and gas. And part of what I do for them and others of my clients is to give them an idea of where markets are going, where prices are going, what investors are thinking about oil and gas, and just all sorts of things like that. So I've done this now for little more than 40 years, which means I'm old, but it uh, also means I've survived. So there, I've I've probably learned a few things that are useful anyway. So that that's, that's the simple summary of my, my career. Just a, just a few things indeed. And I'm sure we'll dive into a few of those things in more detail. I've heard you talk at length a number of different times, but just zooming out, why should people care about oil and gas prices? Oil is the economy and 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 most people don't know that and i don't expect them to know that but but it really is and 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 why is that so most people think that the economy runs on money there was there's a fellow who i heard recently on the radio i think he runs uh you know planet money or you know something like that on npr and he's written a book about money i mean that's the title of the book and um, I listened to him for 10 or 15 minutes, and he knows everything there is to know about money, except that it's a claim on energy. And, and most people don't think about it that way. But if you think about the way that, that money came into existence, I do work, my physical work, my kilojoules or kilocalories are worth something to me. And if you want me to use them for you, then I'm going to do that in exchange for something. And initially, of course, you know, maybe, maybe you give me a bushel of wheat that you have left over uh, surplus and I'll you know, dig a hole for you or something like that. Well, that gets cumbersome after a while. And so eventually currency was invented, coinage first, as, as a proxy 
for a bushel of wheat or whatever else was exchanged for my physical labor. So you give me food, which I need to generate energy, and I give you the results of that energy. That's, that's the whole basis of, of currency. And because everything is an nth derivative today in our sophisticated world, we don't think that. And so I, I, I constantly have to deal with people who say, oh, well, the price of oil is up because of the value of the dollar. Well, there's no doubt that there's a correlation, but sorry, but you have it backwards. <laughs> you know, the value of the dollar is up or down because the price of energy has somehow changed. So the relationship is clear. It's just that money is not primary. Money is, is a claim. And, and debt is, is a lien. Debt is a, a claim on future surplus energy. And so as long as, as I have surplus energy that is available and cheap, I can grow my wealth and a country can grow its economy. And that's the situation that the, certainly the United States and much of the world has been in since, you know, just to pick a date, World War II. That came to an end. It came to an end in the early 1970s, or it started to end. And for those who, you know, who hearken back to the 80s as being the, the, the great America that we want to go back to, uh, what made it great again was debt. <laughs> you know, the, the, the magic of Reaganomics was debt. <laughs> Not that he was the first one to figure it out, but he and Paul Volcker, his Fed chairman, they got, they got us into big time debt in the form of treasury bonds. And that was what got the U.S. economy booming again. And, you know, that was all great. We reached an end to that kind of in 2008, too much debt led to a financial collapse. Price of oil was $140 a barrel. What a shock. We solved it with more debt, and now we're in another financial economic crisis, which we're solving with more debt. But the point is, is that when you, when you run out of surplus energy, then you have to borrow energy from the future. And, and when you start to wonder if it's really going to be commercial or even available, then the whole system starts to, to, to founder. And, and, and that's what's going on right now in, in, in my view of things. So why should you care about oil? Well, you probably shouldn't, except that the whole basis of the economy and the civilization is energy. And right now, oil is the dominant form of energy, certainly fossil energy, natural gas, coal, and petroleum, you know, it's 84, 85% of, of the world's energy consumption. So whether you like it or whether you don't like it, uh, you, you can't deny the fact that that's, that's what it is. Based on that premise alone, you should care about the price of oil and what oil is doing, right? I agree, sure. The book that you mentioned was Money, The True Story of a Made-Up Thing by Jacob Goldstein. And I actually binge read this the day it came out. Um, it's, right. it, it's pretty interesting, all of this stuff coming off the gold standard in 71 and how that shapes all of this, that debt where we are now is it's certainly very very interesting i'm curious you're saying that, that that the price of oil is the economy so what does the price of oil now tell you about the economy 
that uh, we are in a period of deflation. And so what's happened, just to refresh your, your viewers and listeners' memories, we had a period of the highest real oil prices, sustained oil prices ever from 2011 to 2014. And oil prices in the United States were, they averaged over $90, to $2,020 for that whole period. And that, 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 that had never, ever, ever happened before. And in 2014, the price of oil collapsed for, well, not the first time, but the first time in the 21st century. And the price went from 100, let's say, to 50. And it slowly worked its way back and it collapsed again in 2020. Most people think that, well, that's because of, you know, the economic closure, because of COVID and, and et cetera. But, but really what's happened throughout that same period is, is that we, we start, we were inflating our money supply and we were not finding any more surplus energy. And the result is deflation of, of commodity prices. It's, it's kind of straightforward. So you, you create more money. You don't create any more product. Most people think, well, that's going to create inflation. Well, the, the reality is, is that at least for oil and gas markets, it, it produces the inverse. And that's because you're, you're taking, a, you know, Goldstein says it's, it's something completely artificial like totally disagree with him on that but i i also understand why he says that and and he is a smart guy no no question about it but the but but the point is is that if you you're effect, by printing money you devalue you devalue the currency and therefore it's worth less and so everything that's critical to have goes down in price also and so that that's where we are and so we're at you know, oil prices are, you know, U.S. prices are down below $40 a barrel. International prices are down. So we've, we've lost, you know, 12%, 10% of, of price just in the last two weeks. And, and so, you know, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it, it's a good thing for the consumer in a way because that means that things cost less. And that's exactly why it's happening because, you know, everybody thought, not everybody, but a lot of people thought, oh, good, the economy's recovering, the oil markets are recovering. And so, you know, countries like Saudi Arabia raised their prices only to find that nobody wanted to buy it at a higher price. We then come to find, as I've been saying for months, that this oil recovery is really not a recovery at all. And, and so when, when, when people either are unwilling to pay what you want, what the, what the seller wants, or unable to pay, which I think is more to the point in many cases, then there's only one option, and that is to lower the price. You, know, you want to sell your house, you put a sticker price on it, nobody's, nobody's making any offers, what do you do? You reduce the price. And that's what's happening right now with oil. Zooming out a bit, the thing that I always have in mind is lower oil, better for the economy, higher oil, worse for the economy. Is that fundamentally flawed in any way? Is that, is that more or less accurate? It's perfectly accurate as far as, as the consumer is concerned. 
and and of course, as a, you know, the, the most consumers, their primary focus is the price of gasoline. And so, if oil price goes down, then the price of gasoline goes down, and that and that that is that is a good thing. What is missing from that observation is how much of the U.S. economy these days is driven by investment, not just in in the oil business itself, drilling wells, etc., but in all the the industries that support it. So I live in Texas, and for many years, the Eagleford Shale in South Texas, and then the Permian Basin plays in West Texas have been a, a real big thing in, in oil. Well, all the people who work in those businesses need places to stay. They need supplies. So there are hotels, restaurants, trucks, trains, you know, a whole cascade of, of industries that rely on that economic activity for, for their expansion or maintenance of well-being. And so when the price of oil goes down, then companies cut their budgets. They drill a lot less. They let people go. And so all of those, those associated businesses, even if it's just, you know, the truck stop <laughs> or, or a diner, their business goes down as a result. So the immediate, the immediate reaction is, oh, this is a good thing. Gasoline went down 10 cents per gallon. The bad thing is, is that the overall economy suffers much worse once all of that finally, the lags are, are, are taken into effect. But people don't make that association. They think, oh, well, you know, people are losing their jobs and I don't really know why that's happening. It must be the government's fault or, you know, it's the Federal Reserve or something. And, and you know, maybe all those are true. But, but these days, I mean, you know, the United States is the biggest oil producer in the world and the biggest natural gas producer. And so when, when, when our production infrastructure slows down, then the whole country slows down. A lot of analysts always talk about demand, gasoline consumption, obviously, but you seem to talk a lot about supply, supply of oil reserves and these things, and then this talk about investment as well. Walk me through the biggest factors for each of these. I mean, how do you think through all of these different moving parts and how do you distill this to your clients and people that are asking you for your input on these things? Right. Demand is an end member. Supply is an end member. And then there's this thing called storage in between. So uh, we can think about that in terms of you know our own personal lives, and that is that you know I I supply my work, I get money for it, assuming there's demand for my work. Has to have both. You know you can't have one without the other. If I make more than I need to spend, I put it in the bank, I put it in an account. And when I'm not making as much money as I would like, or I have an extraordinary expense, I go to the bank and I take out some money. Okay, so there's storage, which is your, your savings account or your investments that sit in between supply and demand. So all three of those, it's an integrated system. The, the public, and, and I have to say that, that the, you know, the international agencies that really drive things, the International Energy Agency in France and the 
and OPEC and the, you know, in the United States, the Department of Energy, the EIA. I mean, these guys are obsessed with demand. And, and, and you can tell from my comments, well, you know, that's like, you know, I'm obsessed with, you know, with the companies I work for, but what about that? What, 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 what do they pay me? <laughs> You know, it's a great place to work, but if I don't get paid, I'm not real happy about it. So you can't look at these things in isolation. That said, markets really only care about supply. Now, I, I know that's a, that's a radical statement, but, but markets are us. Everyone is, is the market. You know, we use it in the first person or the third person, it, but, but it, it, it's a we. And and markets are smart because collectively we're, we're, we're very smart. And markets know that demand is a really tough thing to control. But supply is a pretty easy thing to control. And I can control supply with price. And so if, if the market says, you know, guys, um, $45 oil is just not cutting it right now. We're going to give you 40 Guess what happens? people stop drilling wells. They stop drilling wells, supply goes down, demand goes up, ideally, if it's cheaper, I mean, in, in, in perfect world, and everything's fine. Now, markets don't really care about consumers. Markets care about having an adequate supply, in this case, of oil. But I think all markets work that way. I, 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 can't, I can't think of, of any market that wants either too much or too little. So markets are just concerned with, do we have enough natural gas for winter? Do we have enough oil to supply gasoline through the summer driving season? Markets are kind of short-sighted in that respect. And so markets have learned that if I turn up or down the dial on price, I get a pretty quick response from the people that go out and make that supply happen. And guess what? Demand, demand adjusts. And so to me, the model is, if you have to have a model, it's, it's a supply-constrained model. And it's really got to do with producer behavior, companies involved more than anything else. And demand usually follows. So all the people that are you know, obsessing about, about demand, well, if demand is down and supply is down, who cares? Well, I mean, somebody cares, but, but you know, from, from an average person's perspective, as long as there isn't too much or too little, then everything's okay, right? That may not be the right price for an oil company. That's their problem. But as a market, you know, markets are kind of impersonal. We, markets don't really care how Ben or Art are doing right now in the present economy. They're, they're looking much more broadly. So, so I, I'm, I'm much more, if, if I have to pick, my choice is take the integrated approach. But if you ask me, you know, what's, what's primary and what's secondary? I say supply is, is primary. I say storage is probably a, a more relevant indicator of, of where things are than even demand. I'm, I'm, I'm much more, I'm, you know, you read a, a report today, the International Agen Energy Agency said, oh, well, we're in a deficit right now, which means that the demand is greater than supply. And we think it's going to be that way for the rest of the year. And everybody said, hooray, hooray. You know, we, we're finally, you know, we're, we're, that means oil prices are going up. Well, wait a minute. We've got record amounts of oil in storage. So my, my savings account is overflowing and people are cheering because 
Because what? Because I, I might have to go and, and transfer money into my checking account. You know, I'd rather not do that, but it's not a problem. And so, the, you know, these are the kinds of things that I think are very difficult for, you know, for investors to, to really kind of get their, their hands around because they, they hear so many conflicting or different sorts of opinions and approaches. And, and it's really not, it's, it's not that hard. It just takes a kind of a clear, a clear view of what's really going on. That's a very clear analogy with the savings, savings account, the large amount of excess oil in storage. This is from the deficit that we've been running at with COVID-related travel bans and things like this, correct? Of course. With the beauty of supply and demand is, you know, these markets exist and find some equilibrium. So with supply, I can understand that this only can help you forecast out you know, price throughout your models to a certain extent because it, everything adjusts accordingly. The price goes way down, people shut down, they stop drilling, demand stays constant, the price goes back up, they ramp back up to, to equalize that out. But with demand, it seems like there can be longer term trends that you can kind of notice, things like renewable energy. And is, is that presumably why investors focus more on the demand side of things? It's easier to wrap their head around? That's a good question. It's it, it, it's not easier for me, but you know I don't want to project myself. I mean, we are a a civilization that is obsessed with growth, and so growth is, I guess, you know, most correlative with demand. And so, as long as demand for something, you know, whether it's food or or cars or oil, if demand is always going up, then that's a good thing. That means we're growing. And so when demand is is flat or declining as it has been recently, that's a bad thing. I mean, that's that's just the way we think. So I I suspect that that's that's the root of it. All, all, although I don't know, but but why are we so obsessed with growth? And and the answer is, I think, first of all we're used to it. <laughs> I mean, ever since, well, since you and I were born, we've been in a period of tremendous growth everywhere around the world, even in, in you know, very poor countries, there's been quite a bit of growth. And, and here in the United States, we, we entertain this conceit that it's because we're just so ingenious. You know, we're so exceptional and innovative and just just great i mean really when you get right down to it and 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 that's true i mean you know we we are pretty we are we are good but i mean truly it's 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 got it's got everything to do with petroleum i mean if you look at at the the ascendance of 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 prosperity in the world it it happened because of oil i mean the productivity multiplier on oil is is so immense it's just i mean it's just really hard for people to understand that and 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 if you compare that i'll, I'll get back to that in a moment but you know you compare that that productivity multiplier in oil to say a productivity multiplier from wind or solar or you know and, and well, let me just state up front yeah, I've made my living in the oil and gas business. I got into geology because I'm, I'm an environmentalist, I'm a conservationist, and I'm a 100% behind renewable energy. So 
what I'm saying is, is not partisan. It's, it's just, it's physics, okay? It's the physics of, of energy that, that I'm talking about. And, and, and the, 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 so the truth is, is that, is that, the, is that petroleum is what gave us the boost. And, and, and we've got an awful lot of people right now who think, well, all we have to do is get off of petroleum because it's dirty and nasty and, you know, creates a lot of emissions. And, you know, if you want to get into that, we can talk about it. But let's just say for right now that they're right. And so all we have to do is convert to cleaner energy and everything will be great. And, and, and what that misses completely is, is, is the, the energy that's contained or available, the surplus energy, once again. You need surplus energy to grow your economy. And so it's as if, you know, if, if I go out and fill my gas tank with standard gasoline and I get, say, 400 miles to the tank, well, that's really wonderful. But if I decide that I want to run my car off of electricity or natural gas, you know, I do the equivalent of filling my tank with battery charging or natural gas, and whoops, I can only go 120 miles. Well, that's not the same. Let's say it costs the same, which it doesn't. But that's not a good deal. I mean, if I have a choice between filling my tank and going 400 miles and filling my tank and going 120 miles, give me 400 every day of the week. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is the density of the fuel supply. And so where, where I'm going with this is that energy is not an on-off switch. I mean, we think it is because we turn a switch on our car or, you know, our thermostat and it comes on. But energy, you know, you get, you, you pay more, you pay, it has quality, different quality. So oil and this will blow everyone's mind who hasn't heard it before. But if you, if you convert the, the contents of 42 gallons of a barrel of oil into kilojoules or kilocalories work, it works out to be about four and a half years worth of human labor in one barrel of oil. Wow. Now, I don't care if that barrel costs $10 or $1,000. You know, I, I don't think you could hardly find anybody, you know, in the world who would work for four and a half years for $1,000, even in the poorest country in the world. And so oil is just a heck of a good deal. And so that kind of, of multiplier, it just doesn't exist anywhere else in nature that is commercial and abundant to produce. And so you're looking for a reason for why the world economy has grown. It's real simple. Four and a half years in a barrel of oil that on average has cost something like 35 or $40 a barrel. You just can't beat it. You just can't beat it. And you want to replace it with something. And let's be optimistic and say that, you know, you can't put solar in a barrel or anything or wind in a barrel, but just, just for a, a comparison, it's probably, Somebody's going to scream when I say a number, but I'm just going to say, let's say it's 25%. It's probably less than that. But let's, let's just be nice and say it's 25%. Okay, well, I just took a 75% hit on my productivity. Who in the world would want that? And the answer is nobody that I know, 
if Not they if knew driven. that in capitalism right i mean there has to be some sort of offset to encourage that sort of you gotta you, you better give me some really good benefit other than just cleaner air if you want to convince me to take a 75 percent hit on my productivity and so where your question began was well you know we hear an awful lot this is the end of the oil age this is you know Exxon's out of the, you know, the Dow and BP's selling coffee and, you know, they're going to be a renewable energy company. And, and you know, and, and, and I understand that. But back to where I started, I mean, 85% of our energy comes from fossil energy. And, and, and if, it were, if it were a law or, or, a, or, you know, a commandment on Mount Sinai, <laughs> You know, thou shalt eliminate all oil, coal, and natural gas tomorrow. You can't make that conversion fast enough. No matter how much you want to or need to, it takes decades to replace 85% of everything that you run on with something else. And then you get into the quality issues. So the point of all this is that whatever you read, whatever you hear, whatever your stockbroker tells you, whatever your buddy tells you, if you think that we're done with oil, then first of all, I think you're dead wrong. But more importantly, if you believe that, then you also have to believe that going forward, the world is going to be a far poorer place by, what do you want to say, 75%? And what, what portion of seven and a half or eight billion people can we support on 25% of the energy that it takes to keep everybody alive? And so now we're talking, you know, the first thing we said is, well, okay, we're gonna be poor, that sucks. But what happens to billions of people? I mean, they die is what happens. I mean, the, the only reason we have seven and a half billion people on the planet is fertilizer, which comes from natural gas. The, the planet's carrying capacity prior to the, the advent of, of the processes that make commercial fertilizer in, in the early 1900s was 2 billion. The only reason there's 8 billion people on the planet is because we fertilize the soil and we get that productivity boost. Planet can't support 7.5 billion people without fossil energy. So now we have a moral issue on top of just a straight economic issue. You want to get rid of oil? Great. Sign me up. But understand what you're signing up for. Standard of living that's probably equivalent to 1950s or 60s. You know, I was alive in the 1950s and 60s. My life wasn't terrible. But nobody wants to go backwards. We lived in much smaller houses. We had one car, things like that. That was in the United States, the most prosperous country in the world. And what are you going to do with billions of people that no longer can, can live? And, and so these are, you know, these are questions that, that investors really ought to, ought to ponder. Because if everybody thinks that energy is a bad investment or oil is, got to be an opportunity there somewhere, right? There's some deep deep moral questions there wrapped up with all of this, right? And um, abundant, cheap surplus energy and capital over these past, since World War II, call it, I mean, has, has 
allowed for tremendous growth. So I think that's that's very, very good point. But I mean, like you touched on, Exxon, out of the Dow, BP now suddenly selling coffee as you know a, a, an actual business case. These are counter to the back to normal energy markets as we know it. And I think, are they just a distraction for investors? And like, hey, the world's not transitioning off of oil anytime soon, but these these headlines sure make you wonder and question that investment thesis, right? I have no way of knowing, so I'm, I'm, I'm speculating here, but I think that, that 95% of the kinds of statements that are coming out of companies like BP and Shell and Total about, you know, becoming more renewable energy companies. I think 95% of that is PR and not necessarily PR for their customers, but, but PR for their investors, people who are, who hold their shares. You know that investors aren't happy about dividends going to zero or dividends being cut by the companies that are cutting them. So they gotta, they gotta give them something back. And what are they going to give them back? They're going to give them back. Well, but we, you know, we're becoming a green com- company. We're we're we're, you know, we're going to make money through renewable energy, and we believe that the returns are there. And and, and you know, and, and I, I'm not sure that they really are to the extent that we're being told. But anyone who believes the statements of any CEO needs to you know see a therapist anyway. I mean, these guys. Are, I mean, their whole job is promoting their company's stock. I mean, that's that's. That's what they're paid to do. That's why they're paid the amazing salaries they are. And so they, I'm not, I'm not questioning their integrity, but you know, listen to what they say, understanding that. There, there's an agenda there and the agenda is, is me. <laughs> I make more money if I push my company's stock more. That's just, that's just the way it works. So you know, be careful. And the other thing I'd say is, you know, be careful about the investment banks that provide so much of this this commentary, whether it's, you know, Citi or, you know, Bank of America or Deutsche Bank or, you know, I mean, there are all of these investment banks have huge research departments that make up an awful lot of the, the headline commentary about where prices of everything is going. I mean, these are, these companies are not, these investment banks are, you know, they're not philanthropic organizations. They're not doing this as a public service. They're, they're providing so-called research because it promotes their interest. And, and again, I'm, I'm not, I'm not in any way, you know, implying that they're, you know, these, these analysts are dishonest. I'm just saying, you know, they know where their money, where their paycheck's coming from. And so they're they're putting out information that benefits their company, as they should, as they should. But as a consumer of that information, we have to be careful because they're they're pitching their book. I mean, that's what it is. Goldman Sachs, you know, they come out and they say, we think the price of oil is going to $200 a barrel. Well, anybody with half a brain knows that's ridiculous. But but people take it seriously. And I, I chose an extreme. They, they have said that in the past. But I mean, Goldman has an agenda. Goldman's an investment bank. And they're, they're, they're promoting a, a perspective that benefits them. It's just that simple. Investors beware, for one thing. You know, get your information from, if such a thing exists, objective sources. 
you know, on, on oil. I like to think I'm objective. I'm probably not as objective as I think I am because I fall in love with my ideas like the rest of us, but I, I'm not beholden to, to an oil company or investment bank. I, they don't pay my bills. Right. So you're providing research for investors, oil companies, I mean, a, a number of different parties, right? Yesterday, I, I talked to a doctor, <laughs> you know, a radiologist in California, and he's concerned about investing in the stock market and treasury bonds and all that. And he's looked into a couple of oil company deals, you know, where he can as a, you know, as a, as an investor, a limited partnership. And he said, you know, can you tell me if, you know, should I put money in this or not? Is this a good deal? Is it a bad deal? So I'm going to look at his perspective, his prospectus, and, you know, he's going to pay me not very much money compared to the investment to tell him if I think that what he's looked, what he's looking at here, does it, does it pass my sniff test? Does it look like it you know, does it look like he has no chance at all that it's a swindle or might there be something worthwhile here? And if I tell him thumbs up, doesn't look bad on the face of it, you know, then he, he will hopefully ask me, well, you know, I'd like you to dig in deeper to that and, you know, really get down to the details, which of course will cost him a little bit more money. That's a, that, you know, that's one end of the spectrum of, of people that, that I work with. I get calls from, you know, people in, Southern California, you know, inherited some royalty interest in, you know, in some field outside of Bakersfield. They don't know what to do with it. Somebody's come to them and says, hey, you know, I'll pay you X amount of money for your, you know, one half of 1%. Should I sell it to them? Well, okay. So first of all, I don't know, but tell me where it is and let me, let me put a value on your one half of 1%. And if they offer you any less than that, tell them to go take a hike kind of thing. Those are the, you know, those are the, the small time people that I deal with. And then, you know, all the way on the other end to, you know, major funds, governments, major oil companies, you name it. So, you know, the whole, the whole spectrum of investment. Yeah. And, and this is the thing with investing. I mean, people want clarity. They want clarity from experts like yourself. So for the, the average investor that is investing based on the thesis that we're not going to switch right over to renewable energy. Yes, you know, I think we're all aligned that that's the future somewhere down the line. But as you exemplified, like it's very difficult to turn it, switch it right over. Where are we at in this cycle from a hundred plus dollar barrel? Now we're sub 40. What's your outlook for the next? whatever time period makes the most sense for you and and how does a smaller investor get involved fitting into that thesis that energy is going to be around and maybe we'll go back to normal in some way i think the the simple answer to your question ben is i i, I don't i mean i'm not going to tell my you know my 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 radiologist that he's you know he's off on something he shouldn't be, but but really and truly, I I I don't recommend that individual investors, whatever their their risk appetite or or their you know the, the money the the discretionary money they have, whether it's a few thousand dollars or a few hundred thousand dollars, I, I really don't recommend that they make direct investments in the oil business. It's just hugely risky, 
and it's not the risks are are too many to to get involved in but the simple the simple risk is you drill a well you think it's going to cost 5 million bucks something happens completely beyond your control and it ends up costing 10 million and assuming that you find what you thought you were going to find well now you're you know your 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 capital investment just doubled your net present value you know your payout has now moved you know years into the future and it, and it wasn't anybody's fault and it wasn't predictable direct investment in oil is is for people with massive access to capital okay and so now if somebody wants to invest i'm all you know i'll be i'll be glad to to steer them in a direction that makes sense for for them or somebody like me but i i think it's smarter for people to to buy stock and and you know stock has its own multipliers of course and there are different perceptions of different companies but uh, if you bought if you bought shares of you know, name your 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 tight oil company you know Diamondback Concho Pioneer any number of them in 2016 when oil prices were as low as they got in that cycle and all you did was hold that stock until sometime in the middle of 2018 you'd have made about a 200 percent gain. If you're smart about it and you, you, know, you watch prices and you got in and you got out, well, who knows how much you could have made. But so, so when prices are low, that's a bad thing for oil companies, but it's a good thing for somebody that wants to get in at a low price who thinks that the price is going to go up. And how much does it have to go up? I mean, if your bet is, oh, it's, it's $40 and I think it's going to go to 100 I mean, that's kind of a risky bet, but the truth is, is that if it goes from 40 to 41 <laughs> and, 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 and you're, you're sharp about, you're buying and selling, you can make a heck of a profit just by picking a company that's well positioned to benefit. And oil companies, the price of their shares is directly proportional to the price of oil. And then depending on, on the, the, you know, the, the multiple involved, the perception of the public, you, you, can, you can add or subtract a number from that. And again, that's, that's not without risk, but it's liquid. I mean, it's something, you know, you can, you can get into, you can get out of. You can, you know, and, and it, it doesn't require a lot of upfront capital. And then there's all sorts of other things that, you know, maybe people want to get involved with, you know, some kind of, you know, refining or, you know, natural gas liquid extraction, you know, midstream kind of stuff in between the production and, and, the, and the exploration and the production. There, there's a whole spectrum of things. But, but for most people, I think, you know, the stock market is, 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 is good. ETFs are, are a way to, you know, to, to spread out your risk and, of course, your reward as well. You get into an oil ETF and you're you're probably not going to make the kind of profits that you would on an individual company, but you're also probably not going to see the losses. Right. Just like you're talking about like XLE energy spider, right? Vanguard, you know, yeah. 
Yeah. But I mean, something like that, XLE is down like 40% this year. And obviously it's been a, a rough year. So this is highly correlated to the price of oil. So, I mean, are you comfortable doing oil price estimates? Because this is kind of a proxy for where these oil stocks are going. I mean, where, where do you see the price of oil going? And thus this would translate to value for these stocks, right? Sure. Well, you can go back and, you know, read my tweets or you can uh, go on my website, artberman.com. And, you know, you can, you can read what I was writing about in March or April. And in March or April, I said, oil is, is almost certainly going to rebound to somewhere in the 40 to $45 range. That wasn't a guess. It wasn't a Monte Carlo simulation, <laughs> you know, it wasn't some stochastic, you know, kind of uh, Fibonacci kind of an equation. It was based on, on, on some techniques that I've used for many years. I call it comparative inventory. It's out there for anybody to take a look at. And voila, I mean, oil got to exactly, I think I, I, think I said $42 a barrel. It got to almost, and it got to 43. And, and I said early on, it isn't going any higher. And here are the reasons why. And it didn't go any higher. And, and it went down. Okay, that, that doesn't mean that I'm, I'm always right. It means that I understand the way the market works. So I'm not going to make you a price forecast that you can take to the bank tomorrow because I'd be an idiot if I did. And, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to approach price forecasting like I do everything else. It's probabilistic. Okay, I'm going to tell you what I think, what the most likely case is. But there's, you know, there, there's, a, there's a, a P20 and a P80 and there's, you know, all sorts of, so, you, you know, you, you tell me what your, you know, what kind of risk you're willing to take and, I, and I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a number. But that, you know, that's, that's not really the business I'm in. It, it's obviously part of the business, but I've been, I've been frighteningly accurate on, on where oil prices are going since I really, since I started doing that kind of work back know, six, seven years ago on oil specifically, I was more into natural gas before that, but, and I'm, and you know, natural gas is another good case. Natural gas was you know, averaging something like a dollar sixty, a dollar seventy per thousand cubic feet or million BTUs, and all of a sudden it started going up, and everybody was freaking out, and people were celebrating. Oh my God! You know, uh, gas price got to something like two fifty, and the whole time I was writing, you know, this is weather, guys. You know, oh no, no, no. You know, it's because of all the reduced production and there's lower supply and blah, blah. And, you know, and, you know, do, did I have moments of self-doubt? Of course I did. But the reality is, is that, you know, it's back down below $2 and, and it was weather. I mean, you, you got to understand natural gas markets. It's, it's all about consumption. And we had, you know, you're in California, California weather got really, really hot. And spot prices of natural gas in California got over $200 in MCF on a short-term basis. Okay, well, that puts the whole system out of whack. And it drove it way up, and then things cooled off, and, and we're kind of back to normal. So, again, I'm, I'm not the guy to tell you, 
you know, you know, it, it's a sea biscuit in the in the seventh. <laughs> I don't do that. But but as prices are, you know, I'll tell you, look, natural gas is way overpriced right now. And so whatever your business is, you know, if you just want to short natural gas, you can make a ton of money if you think I'm right. And I don't have to be exactly right. You know, I'm, I'm going to say, I would have said, I did say, I wrote it. You know, I don't think gas has any business being over $2 an MCF. So, you know, factor that into whatever kind of a short you want, whether it's on an oil co- gas company stock or an ETF for a commodity or some proxy for a commodity, you would have made a fortune. And everybody said, oh, Berman's wrong. He's an idiot. You know, he doesn't understand, blah, 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 blah. And sometimes they're probably right. You know, I, I, don't, have a, I don't have a monopoly on, on, on truth or correctness. But yeah, the, those are, there, there are a lot of things that go on in these markets that, let's just say there's a lot of amateurs in these markets. And, 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 and they see momentum go in one direction and they get real excited and, you know, God bless them. I mean, that's great. You know, enthusiasm is good. But, you know, I, I've said forever, after Labor Day and natural gas, look out. Because that's when markets say, do we have enough gas for winter? And these, these corrections I just mentioned, what do you know? They happened right around Labor Day. <laughs> not everybody knows that. It's not a secret. But, you know, you've been around doing this for four decades. You learn a few things. Oh, yeah. Well, the future is unknowable, right? So anytime you're forecasting out, you're looking at probabilities and and these things and making the best guess, but ultimately it's unknowable. So it's very, very difficult. You touched on a number of things there, separating the signal from the noise. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of noise out there on things that are going on. Are, what what key things should investors be monitoring? You know, around supply, storage, and demand, like these these sorts of factors. What, where where should they be focusing their attention to better understand the oil market? Besides your Twitter, which is excellent, by the way. Thank you. Well, there. So we are in a you know sort of a, a clash of the titans at the moment between OPEC and their friends and family, you know, Russia, Mexico, all the various countries that are currently have been cutting production. So it's, it's been a, it's been a producer. It's been, it's been a seller's market for the better part of 50 years, one way or another. And China has in its own (laughs) kind of uh, uh, behind the scenes way China is a country, I mean, China is the biggest oil importer in the world. And there's not a heck of a lot that China can do about that because most of China's oil production, it, it, it has a respectable amount of production, but it, it peaked a long time ago and it doesn't come close to meeting their, their demand. And so China has been very clever in essentially figuring out how to turn oil into a buyer's market. So. One thing that, in answer to your question, that people can watch is how much oil is China buying? And that's publicly available. I mean, you can get on, you know, Reuters or Bloomberg or, you know, even the New York Times, Wall Street Journal. And, and you know, these are you know, just, just get online and, and go to, you know, WSJ, Wall Street Journal, Energy. 
and it'll come up and it'll tell you stuff, you know, give you headlines and you can click on those if you subscribe. And if you don't try, you know, there's somebody that'll reprint it. But the point is, is that most of the oil recovery since April has been because China's been buying cheap oil. They've been buying millions and millions and millions of barrels. That's a form of demand, isn't it? Okay. So as long as China's buying cheap oil, things look pretty darn good. Well, gets to a certain price and China says, you know what? We don't need any more. We certainly don't need any more at this price. China stops buying. What happened? Oh, the, the demand recovery just stalled. Uh, we don't really understand what's happening. Yeah, we do. <laughs> China stopped buying. So China's got this really important lever that it's turning. And it, it did the same thing in 2008. The reason that oil got to 140 some odd dollars a barrel was because China was, you know, China was rising and China was buying every barrel in sight until they stopped. And so that dynamic of supply side, buy side is in a huge flux right now. And if you're a have not, and there's more of those in the world than there are haves in terms of big economies and all the Asian economies, I mean, they got nothing. There's no oil whatsoever for Korea, for Japan, for, you know, an awful lot of these large economies. And so they're, they're on board with, with China's leadership on this deal. And of course, China's been out buying production, lending money to developing countries that happen to have oil production. So, you know, that's, that's a real deal. So, you know, follow, follow what China's doing, and that'll tell you a great deal about where things will be for oil supply, demand, and prices in a couple of months from now. That's just one of many little things that anybody can do if they care to. Interesting. Yeah, it's uh, it's absolutely terrifying how levered to the Chinese economy and their growth the rest of the world is. I lived and worked in Thailand for four years and spent a lot of the time in that region and countries like Laos, Cambodia, Myanmar, and the amount of Chinese investment and everything just coming over from China is is fascinating and terrifying and alarming. What major catalysts are you looking for that would reverse your kind of bull thesis on oil as a driver for global economy? Is there, I mean, China suddenly saying they've opened up all of Tibet as a solar energy farm and they're going to be energy independent. This would obviously have a catastrophic impact on price of oil. But what, what kind of major catalysts would just make you totally rethink everything you know about oil? I always try to to ask myself, where could I be wrong? Because I've we've all been wrong, right? And 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 usually when 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 I'm most wrong, it's because I I'm certain that I can't be wrong. <laughs> Having said that though, Ben, I I mean energy is the basis of life. You know, forget about human beings. I mean, look at you know, at, at any any animal or any living thing, for most animals, depending on what they do and what they eat, I mean, somewhere between 50 and 90% of their time is involved with getting food. Okay, animals understand that energy is life because if they don't eat, they die. And that's... I, that 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 just isn't going to change. That is the basis 
of life. And, and my thesis that energy is the economy is, it can only be wrong because it's a derivative that, I mean, everything that we do is a derivative of a derivative of a derivative in, in human society. So what I explained is that, is that the, the primary exercise is what all animals do. I need food to eat. I hunt. I farm. Whatever. I get surplus energy. I get somebody, I get, you know, I get more, more food than I need. I, I pay somebody else in food so that they do my work for me. Eventually we invent money. So food is a first derivative of life. Money is a second derivative. Then I can make money without doing anything but you know buying a stock or something and that's a third derivative i can buy synthetics i can you know get credit default swaps and synthetic credit default swaps which are probably a a 50th derivative of of what do i need to eat today and and so we lose sight of uh, of what all that's based on so admitting that I, I i know i can be wrong i don't see how how life can be based on anything other than energy. And so to your question, let's say that China decides to go all out in replacing its reliance on fossil energy. And by the way, I mean, they, they are. I mean, China is intent on leading the electric vehicle, movement, solar panels, wind turbines, all the rare earth metals that go into that stuff. And they're, and they're winning in that regard because they saw it and nobody else did or nobody else needed it as much as they do. But, but here's the problem. If you want to turn Tibet into a solar farm, the first thing that you need to ask is where do the components for the solar panels come from. What are they? Well, there's obviously metal because or wind turbine. Where's the steel come from? Well, it comes from iron for the most part. How do you get iron out of the ground? You mine it. What do you use to mine iron? Diesel. What do you do with the iron when it comes out of a mine in Chile, let's say? Well, you send it somewhere to be smelted. Put it on a boat. What's the boat run on? Boat runs on diesel. Okay, the boat takes it across the Pacific Ocean. Maybe it goes to China. Goes into a smelter. What's a smelter run on? Coal. I mean, the day that we figure out how to replace metallurgy with, with wind power, I want to be there because it isn't going to happen. You cannot produce that level of heat with, you know, in, in, in anything that's even remotely affordable with electricity. You can do it, but the cost is just, is, is ridiculous. So you smelt the steel with coal, and then you send the metal, we're just talking about the casing for the solar panel. You send it to a factory that's gonna, gonna form it, and that's gonna run on electricity, which is coal and natural gas. You make the parts, you put the lithium, you put all the other crap in it. That all comes from mines that run on diesel, on boats that run on diesel, etc. And finally, you've got your solar panel. And what do you do with it? Well, you're going to send it to the United States, of course. How does it get here? You put it on a boat. 
that runs on diesel. It shows up at the port of Los Angeles. What happens? It gets picked up in a truck. What's a truck run on? Diesel. Okay. So, you know, you, you do all this calculation and, and, and those who say we're, we're going to, you know, we need to get off of oil and run on what? Well, we're going to run on solar panels. Okay. Well, I just went through that. No, you're not. You, you, well, okay, so we're going to have to keep some oil. Okay, you're going to have to keep some oil. How much is some? You know, do the calculation. I don't want to get into that right now. The answer is you can reduce your reliance on oil, but you cannot replace those fundamental functions. Now, the option is you want to live in a poor world. Oh, okay. Well, now, now we can start talking. You know, we, we, can, we can say, well, what are you willing to do without? I guarantee you, you're not going to use high-tech solar panels to run a poorer world without the metals and, and everything that go. Well, we can replace those. And, and here's a point that I, I, I want to leave everyone with, that we in America are hopeless faith-based technology believers. We believe in technology that hasn't even been invented yet. We believe in technology more than we believe in God. Well, somebody's gonna figure this out. Well, okay, but nobody has. So what are we gonna do in between the now and the someday somebody's gonna figure out how to smelt iron with electricity that's commercial. Well, I'm not going to be alive. Nobody knows how to do that now. And if nobody knows how to do it now, and let's say they figure it out tomorrow, it's going to be decades before it's upscaled and then commercialized and then adopted. And so we're, we're always talking decades. And yet we Americans just think that, well, you know, it's going to happen tomorrow. And it never does. I mean, when I was a kid, I, I honestly was sad that I wouldn't be able to drive a car because I thought that, you know, the Jetsons were going to happen and we'd all be, you know, driving around. And I, I was really sad about that, you know, because in 10 years, we're not going to be using cars anymore. And I'd watch my neighbor, you know, he's washing his 57 Chevy. Damn, I missed it, you know. Well, that didn't happen. And it didn't happen for a reason. And that is that you don't just retire perfectly good equipment. I mean, we've got something like, you know, 300 million internal combustion engine cars in the United States. And, and, and maybe we want to get rid of internal combustion. What are you going to do? you going to throw them away? No, you're not going to throw them away. You're going to use them until they wear out. That's the way it works. I mean, do you remember when we converted from analog to digital television a couple of years ago. I mean, only 20% of Americans used analog television to begin with. And all you had to do to be part of the mandated regulated conversion was go someplace in your car and get a box for free. And it took three years, just like, you know, the census was supposed to have been do and whenever March and I still see people out knocking on doors because people don't do what they're told. Okay, well, all these people didn't get the damn boxes. 
And so three years later, we finally turned off the analog. That was free. And so for people who think that humans change their habits quickly, I invite you to observe. Observe life in all of its fullness. Adoption happens usually over my dead body is the way it works. And so all of these, you know, I got a friend who calls it hopium. You know, all of this hopium about what somebody's going to figure out how to do eventually, you know, put it on a shelf. If it doesn't exist today in, you know, if it isn't at least a pilot program, then as an investor, forget about it. Just, I mean, to, maybe I'm very short-sighted, but for me, I say, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 70 years old in a month or two. I got no time for what if and maybe. I need something that will grow for me in the next couple of decades. And if it doesn't have that potential, well, you know, some young guy can, or girl can, you know, put your money in that. That's great. I think you're going to lose your money, but that, that's fine. But for me, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm interested in, I'm a big, I'm a big picture guy. So I'm, I'm not next quarter kind of guy, but you know, if it doesn't exist and it isn't commercial and people aren't using it, forget about it. So Tibet turning into solar panels, just forget about it. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen in a time frame that's meaningful and it's going to take so much metal and so much hydrocarbon, oil and gas that if everything else were easy, it wouldn't happen. I think it's a very good point. I mean, it, it opens up the door to some rather philosophical debates on the alignment of long-term incentives and things like this that I definitely don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But I, I think that's that's a very good point to kind of leave it on. I, I did have one more question. So speaking of your Twitter feed, I mean, you have a quite a nice breadth of good information on oil markets. How do you consume data? How do you, do you use any tool, tools to, to help kind of parse through this? Is there any insight that you can offer our, our more novice Twitter users like myself? Yeah, well, Twitter, so... If you're interested in oil, learn your hashtags, okay? So follow, and you, don't to, you don't have to actually follow me, but just, just take a look at one of my tweets and, and, and double click on it so you can see it large and look at the hashtags I use. And I'm gonna use things like oil and gas and WTI and crude and OPEC all with a hashtag in front of it. And just start following those, those groups and you will suddenly be overwhelmed with all kinds of information from people like me. You never have to follow me, but since I list those, I tag those, everything that I put out goes to them. And if you're, if you're lined up with them, then you'll get it all from not just me, but everybody else who, you know, who, who does that sort of thing. And, and, People that know Twitter or other platforms know how to do that. So that's, that, 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 that's the, the simple way to go. But, but one, one theme that we didn't talk about that I want to briefly mention, because I think it's crucial, and that is that, and this is maybe on the, the theme of hopium a little bit, but, but for those who think that, that once we get a vaccine for COVID, that everything's going back to whatever normal was. 
I invite you to put that on the same shelf as the what ifs and maybes about Tibet turning into a solar, a solar farm. Things never go back to the way they were to begin with. Normal was not normal. It's what we remember as normal. But this economy, and I mean the world economy, has been so fundamentally damaged by what's happened in the last few months. And none of that was because of COVID. It was because of, of the bad habits and the structural flaws we've been accumulating for this entire debt cycle of 50 or 60 years. COVID accelerated it tremendously. COVID didn't cause it. Okay, now all of those things are out in the open. And let's say COVID goes away. Let's say we find not just a vaccine, but we kill it and it's gone. I mean, BP, as we're buying coffee from them, told us yesterday that their best estimate is that world GDP will be 5% lower than it is today, or 5% lower than it would have been in 2050 because of what's already happened, assuming an immediate recovery. 5% negative GDP 30 years from now. Now, I, I, I invite you to be hugely skeptical about everything BP tells you and every other Fortune 100 or 500 corporation. But for anyone who thinks that, that you know, we just shake this off and go back, my gosh, I mean, you know, let's say they're wrong. Let, let's say it's only a half a percent. I mean, back in, in whatever was normal, a half a percent drop in GDP in one year was catastrophic. So I don't want to be, I'm not, I don't want to be pessimistic. But your audience is investors. Investors need to have their eyes open. And an investor who thinks that things are going to snap back to the way they were is going to be an investor that loses his ass if his investments are based on that. So I, I, you know, people ask me all the time or they comment and say, well, you know, Art, we, I agree with everything you just said, but the difference between you and me is that I'm an optimist and you're a pessimist. Okay. And I reply back, you know, actually I'm neither. I'm a scientist. The universe doesn't really care about optimism or pessimism. Physics doesn't care. Geology doesn't care. These are not factors. This is what the information is telling me about the present configuration of the universe today. You can do with that what you like for the future. But, so it's not pessimistic to take into account this information. It may be wrong, it probably is wrong, but please consider it. These are legitimate, and where could you be wrong in your investment? If your investment scheme is based on things will be back to normal by the end of 2021, I, th I think you're gonna be very disappointed. So I'll leave it there. Oh, I mean, I, this is a very valid, valid point. And this whole, the whole thought that growth can, can clip on at three to 5% into perpetuity, people don't understand exponential growth, right? Like I think the Egyptian population, had they grown at 5% from their heyday, there'd be like a hundred billion Egyptians running around the, the, the world right now, right? It's just population growth plateaus. You can't have cheap debt forever, but this is, there's a whole nother can of worms, uh, <laughs> that's for sure. And, and a lot of people don't understand.
and discounting either. That's that's the other thing that I see. But no, I've uh, it's been a great conversation, Ben. Really, really fun to talk to you. Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. I mean, you, you, as I said before we started, you're you're an expert in this field, and you can talk at length about all the different levers that are being pulled, and, and you know, unprecedented, uncharted waters that we're in right now, navigating those in a, a way that kind of makes sense. Where where would you like my listeners to go to find out a bit more about you, about what you're working on? Where do you want to send them? Uh, they should go to artberman.com. That's that's almost everything there is free. There's some subscription stuff if you want to dig deeper into any of this kind of stuff. And of course, at AE Berman 12 is Twitter. That tells you, you know, every little you know brain tremor that I have. Often a lot of it goes out there. And if you're if you if you want to know who I pay attention to and and what information I think is worthwhile, that's that's a pretty good way to find out in a hurry. Perfect. Well, we'll leave it at that. And I'll I'll link all of those in the show notes. Really appreciate you taking the time today, Art. It's great to have you on. Pleasure to talk to you, Ben. All the best. There you have it. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate your support. Show notes, transcript, links, and more can be found on our website at altassetallocation.com. If you'd be so kind, please share this with anyone you think might be interested or get some value from this conversation. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out. I'm always happy to hear them. Lastly, if you're on YouTube, please like the video or subscribe to the channel. If you're listening to the audio version of this, please subscribe to the podcast and or leave a review. This really helps more people find the podcast, and I really appreciate it. Thanks again, and hope you have a fantastic day. Happy investing.